you know, we're always told we could have it all, you know, mm-hmm. you have to, you know, you can do it all. You can do it all. And I felt like at a certain point I couldn't do it all. And if you're really in that position, I think it's okay. It's okay to make the decision that you can't do it all. You're not a failure. You are actually more of a success because you're recognizing that if you're trying to do too many things, sometimes you're not doing any of them well. Welcome to the Good Life Coach Podcast. I am your host, Michelle Lamoureux. The intention of this show is to awaken you to your fullest potential. Join me each week for inspiring interviews to elevate an area of your life, as well as interviews with women entrepreneurs who are creating success on their own terms. Each episode provides actionable tips to guide you to design a life you love. Hey, there's Michelle, and welcome back to the show. Joining us today is Patricia Mack, who's the Vice Chair for Patient Safety and Quality Improvement at the Department of Anesthesiology at Weill Cornell Medicine. Usually on the show, I'm interviewing female entrepreneurs about their journey, and it was such a pleasure to be able to talk to this incredibly accomplished woman about her career path. And what's great about it is just like with the female entrepreneurs where we talk about connecting the dots and looking back at these different experiences in your life that led you ultimately to what you're doing and who you are today. That's obviously no different whether you go down an entrepreneurial path or you're in a career, or honestly, if you're at home with your children, all of these life experiences are directing us to what's important to us. And hopefully at some point coming together in a way that is so deeply meaningful in our lives. And because of Patricia's background, we also then get the benefit midway through the conversation from transitioning from her story to learning about what actually happens in the operating room, understanding more about the safety protocols and how they're actually similar to the airline industry. You'll hear her talk about that. And the part that I find really interesting, which is the role of artificial intelligence within the operating room and for surgeries and where this technology could possibly go in the future. Very interesting. So I hope you enjoyed today's conversation. Just want to note that when I asked her about COVID, we recorded this probably about two months ago. So this is coming out on March 10th. And uh, we recorded this interview back in January, just giving people some context. And I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. So let's get into the show. Hi, Patricia. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to our conversation. I am as well. Um, I tend to interview a lot of entrepreneurs on the show, and I love that I'm having the opportunity to talk to you because there's a lot of women here who are professionals within organizations, and um, I think that there's going to be some tips that you can share today about advancing within your career, and even if you have to take some time off for kids and put certain parts of your career on hold, uh, that will be really beneficial. But um, take a second to introduce us to what it is that you do, because because you're in the medical field, a lot of us aren't going to necessarily r- recognize some of the terminology. So paint us a picture of what it is that you do. 
Great. So I am currently the vice chair for patient safety and quality improvement at Weill Cornell Medical College, which is affiliated with New York Presbyterian Hospital in Manhattan. Um, and in uh, a typical week, I will spend three days a week caring for patients in the operating room as an anesthesiologist. I specialize specifically in neuroanesthesiology, so that includes brain surgery and major spine surgery. And then two days a week, I have um, administrative time uh, during which I uh, supervise a team that is responsible for analyzing all the significant events um, that occur in the operating room. And a significant event can be um, something that is an untoward uh, event that, or something happened that could have been avoided, perhaps, or just a bad outcome that is not the result of any error, but just you know an outcome that's not ideal for a patient. Um, I also am responsible for teaching anesthesiology residents and medical students, both clinically about anesthesiology and also about quality and patient safety. So we have several programs for that. And I work in conjunction with several of our regional healthcare centers affiliated with New York Presbyterian and other boroughs um, to ensure that our quality programs are aligned and achieving the same goals. And when you were in medical school, at what point did you decide you were going to follow this track? Because I'm always curious, you know, why anesthesiology? Uh, you know, why whatever specialty somebody picks? Right. Yeah. Well, I went to medical school thinking I would either be an ophthalmologist or a pediatric orthopedic surgeon. And so I get to work with both those people. Um, but I discovered that I really enjoyed um, aspects of medicine where I could have an immediate impact on a patient. Mm. I think it's, uh, and I admire um, internists and other physicians who follow patients over time and manage their um, medical problems along with the patient over many months. But I really enjoyed being able to adjust things in an immediate fashion. I also really enjoyed being in the operating room. It's a great team atmosphere where I'm lucky enough that I work with, I've been working with some of the same surgeons for almost 30 years. And uh, we obviously become friends and we work very well together. It's almost like having a separate family um, that. You know, it's just they're wonderful colleagues to work with. And obviously, we're for the time that we have a particular patient, we're all focused the nurses, the surgeons, the anesthesiologists on doing the best we can for that one patient at that one time. And that's something that I really enjoyed. Mm, um, I love that. And your husband's a cardiac surgeon? He's a cardiac surgeon, yes. And have you ever, is he at the same hospital? <laughs> we, we actually did meet in the operating room, yes. So you met, question wait, a lot. this is great. You met in the operating room? We did. We met during a specific case, um, caring for a specific patient uh, on, in January, many, many moons ago. And um, there was a little bit of excitement in that operating room. So let's just leave it at that. That was related to the patient, not to us. And he was um, chastised and told to get his eyes off the anesthesiologist and his head into the case. So uh, that's how we met. Oh my goodness. So, he was taken uh, yeah. like he liked you right away. But can I ask, well, he were was, you? He was an intern. 
Yeah. He was an intern, so he was holding a retractor and, and couldn't really see, I guess, what was going on in the operation because he was just helping out. And so he happened to be looking in my direction and he got yelled at. Oh, that's nice. I find that um, when I meet or I have friends who are doctors, they're often married to other people within the medical field, other doctors, surgeons, whatever. Is that pretty common? You know, I think at the time, the way the work hours were in the early 90s, we really didn't spend much time outside of the operating room. And there was a lot of camaraderie. Um, And we we were just always there. So (laughs) that's who you met. It was, um, you know, and also, I think when you're involved in something that's a difficult training, it is nice to have somebody who can relate to your challenges. Yeah. And, and, and to what you see, because it is very, one of the difficult things about medical school and uh, medical training is that you do see a lot of tragedy and you have to have coping mechanisms for that. So, you know, it's just, it's nice to have somebody when, when there's a really bad day or, or you've gotten attached to a patient who's not doing well, um, that you can go home and say, geez, you know, let me tell you about this. And there's a comprehension, you know, uh, from your partner that is, is very supportive. Yeah. So that's nice. Yeah. Empathy versus sympathy, right? Because they've experienced yeah. it themselves. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So, um, yeah. What's it like right now with COVID and surgeries? Is it just elective right now in New York? What's happening? Well, right now in our institution, we are at half volume, half elective volume. We're really trying to maintain some elective schedule because we we did see very clearly after the first terrible surge in New York where we shut everything elective down that people came in with advanced cancer they came in with you know advanced heart disease that they had not addressed because they either weren't able or were afraid to come for medical care and we'd really like to avoid that um, but it is uh, it is certainly a second surge here And, um, you know, I think we're handling it very well this time. Yeah. And I want to say thank you for your service to all of you there. I mean, and it's also comforting to hear that there's so much camaraderie within the departments and with working together. You said you work with people for 20, 30 years in in those surgeries. And so as somebody who, you know, if you're a patient going in, you may not know that, but knowing that there's that rapport and that connection uh, is comforting. Yes. Well, I, I, I also am very lucky. I mean, I've stayed here for a long time. You know, that yeah. doesn't apply everywhere. Yeah. Um, and obviously there's, there's new, new people who come and, and join the division of neurosurgery and neuro, neuroanesthesiology. And, you know, that there is some turnover. But um, I, I really have to say that I work in a wonderful department where um, there's a lot of people who have been here for a while and just enough people who have, who have come from, who have been trained elsewhere to bring new ideas and, and uh, refreshing attitudes so that we are, do not get stagnant. Right. I can imagine it's uh, emotionally, it can be challenging um, and you have to stay grounded. And at some point your work evolves into patient sa- safety and quality improvement, which is what you're doing now. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm going to just ask a question, and I know a little bit about this, but I'm going to have you tell it in your words. Um, tell us about your 
your parents and your childhood because you did not come from a, a family of physicians, which I also think sometimes families of physicians, their children, ought, I mean, are drawn sometimes to that field. But that wasn't the case in your house. Can you, you tell us about that? No, yes. Um, uh, I grew up, um, I'm an only child, and my parents had me when they were older, in their early 40s. And uh, my dad was a, a New York City police officer uh, who worked in Fort Apache in the Bronx. I don't know if anyone remembers that movie, but he was there in the 60s. Um, and he retired when I was four. And then he became the director of security at a hospital. There's a, wow. a connection there. Mm-hmm. And then um, my mom was ostensibly a secretary for the FBI. And she retired when she got married. But um you know, it turns out that uh, she had a, a more extensive career than I than I knew, and for many many years. Um, but I I had a big extended family where I lived in the Bronx, and almost all of those people, um, well, not all of um, my relatives, but a good predominance of my relatives served in law enforcement and the fire department. So a lot of civil servants, Hmm. um, which I think is fairly typical of uh, Irish American family in the Bronx, Mm -hmm. um, you know, in the 20th century. So, yeah, no other physicians in my family, Uh, nurses, no other physicians, but a couple of nurses. Hmm. Okay, but let's talk about your mom. (laughs) (laughs) My mom. Well, only because um, you had told me how you somehow discovered more about her background when she was older. My mom had a a period of time where she lived with us and she, um, you know, before she died and she was intermittently confused and intermittently very clear headed. And there was a a report on the news about a woman who died. And uh, the report was that she was a Russian spy uh, back in the Cold War. And my mother got very agitated and confused. And, um, you know, I was trying to ask her what was wrong and and she didn't wasn't making any sense. So at that point I actually I don't know why this light bulb went on in my head but I I googled her under her maiden name and then there was this Yale Law Journal article about illegal wiretaps by the FBI in the Cold War and referred to this case with this woman who had died and you know when she was arrested it was based on an illegal wiretap and in a footnote was you know, a reference to FBI agents, and I'm making up the other names, Jones, Smith, and then my mother's maiden name. And I was like, what? You know, FBI agent? So, you know, I just assumed she was a secretary. And that's what she said she was. And so, you know, she, she never admitted it. And she was really near death. And she asked me to call. She, had, she was 88, but she still had several friends who were, with alive, who were alive. And they had all worked together in the FBI. And so she wanted me to call each of them. She could no longer dial the cell phone herself. So before I put her on the phone, I asked each and every one of these women, so what exactly did my mom do? And they all said, oh, she was the secretary. We're all great secretaries. Nobody gave it up. Not a one of them. And so she must have instructed them not to. But it turns out that, you know, they were basically secretaries and stenographers um, because there were no official women in the FBI at that time as agents. They were not allowed to be. Um, but when they needed somebody to tell somebody who would be going into a female restroom or they just wanted to be, you know, following them around in a store or something, they would deputize my mother officially 
and some of the other women, I guess, to um, to do that. And she actually, you know, um, at her funeral, my one of my cousins who actually knew the story because both of my mother's brothers were also agents, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, said, you do know what your mother did. And I was like, I have no idea what she did, but I know it was something, but I'm having trouble finding out. And she told me that she had been on the front page of newspapers and she had had to testify at two trials because it was, you know, a mistrial in the first one. And so I searched on newspaper archive and I found some, you know, you none of the major papers, but a lot of local hometown papers had her picture on the front cover with blonde G girl testifies. And I had no idea. So it, it was really quite a shock. And, um, but when I look back on it, not surprising. She always had very strong um, political opinions and opinions about government. And um, it was interesting. Interesting. So I, I do have this sort of, you know, on both sides of my family, law enforcement investigational background. What's so cool about your story is we often talk on the show about through lines, that these themes that are in your life that sometimes you don't know or pay attention to or can't see until you're further along in your career or Mm -hmm. your journey. And it's interesting because your father and mother both did investigative work. And now you're in a position where you are, in essence, doing that for the safety of procedures right within the operating rooms. Can you talk more about this? I mean, is this something that you, a light bulb went off for you about? No, I think it it really, the light bulb went off much later that it was maybe related. So I, you know, I I entered after my anesthesiology residency, I did a fellowship and then I, um, you know, started as an attending physician here. And my focus was really on clinical research in neuroanesthesiology. Um, And I had several projects in that regard. And then, um, you know, it, at a certain point in time, my, my dad passed away and I sort of took responsibility. As I said, I was an only child. So caring for my mother, um, at first she didn't need much care, just some help. And then she required some significant care um, along with, you know, three children, all boys, very active, lots of activities. Um, and, you know, my husband as a cardiac surgeon was not uh you know, his hours were pretty long and demanding and he worked a lot of weekends, still, still very busy on weekends professionally. So um, I really found that I could not devote the time that I needed to to do successful clinical research. There was a significant amount of time that was necessary outside of a normal workday. Um, and so I decided to just focus on the care of my patients and some administrative duties that I had which involved uh, sort of supervision of some clinical services, but work that could be done really during the my regular workday. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, with that administrative work, I fell into this uh, requirement really to do uh, reviews, very specific, substantial reviews. Um, if anything untoward happened, you know, if a patient didn't do well or somebody felt there was an error or something could have been done better, um, and so I would take the electronic medical record and really go through it minute by minute. We used to get um, vital signs into our database every 15 seconds. Wow. So for a six-hour case, I would go through all those vital signs and try to figure out, you know, did somebody miss something um, or, you know, was it that the patient had bleeding or did something else happen? 
And so I, I did these very thorough reviews. And, you know, this, aside from that is I think you have to be very compassionate when you're doing these investigations because, you know, everybody at work is trying to do the best they can do. Nobody's trying to, to mess up. You know, everybody wants to be perfect all the time. And so, you know, when you're talking to people about these things, well, you know, what do you think you might have done differently? Or was there something that distracted you? Was there something that would have been nice to know from uh, the patient's preoperative history? All these things you have to investigate, quote unquote, uh, with a lot of empathy and compassion, because people are always upset if something has gone wrong. Everyone's upset, you know, not just the patient. So. I guess I, I, I really enjoyed that. I really enjoyed figuring out what could have been done differently. What was the root cause of a problem, whether it was, you know, an equip piece of equipment stopped working or, you know, something else, whatever it was. And so I, I just found that I enjoyed it. And so I ended up doing more and more of it. Uh, at, so outside of my specific area, I got referred other uh, events to, to look at both within my own department and then some other departments, like some other affiliated anesthesia departments would ask me, Hey, can you take a look at this? And so about 10 years after I dropped the um, clinical research part of my career, um, I was asked to direct this and chair the quality and patient safety committee for my department. Um, And I was thrilled. I wasn't sure I was qualified um, because I didn't have any specific training in quality and patient safety, which does exist. Um, at the time, and but I said yes, and then I, uh, you know, organized and deputized a lot of reviews to people and tried to teach other people how to do the review very thoroughly. And I think we have a pretty robust program. I'm sure you do. And again, thank you for your work in doing that. Is that pretty standard mm-hmm. across hospitals? Is this a yes? It's actually required. Um, yeah. You know, a, a evaluation. We have. Um, we call them quality metrics. They exist throughout medicine. And, you know, they're specialty specific and there are national benchmarks for things. Mm-hmm. And a lot of those, some of them are what are called outcome measurements, like mortality is an outcome measure. Um, you know, something happens, but some of them are what we call process measurements. Like, did you um, do a thorough pre-op exam? Did you you know, check the allergies. Did you like, it's things that you're supposed to do. And so we keep track of all those things, both process and outcome uh, measures for, we have um, 105 faculty in our department and um, 80 CRNAs, certified uh, registered nurse anesthetists and 80 anesthesia residents. Wow. So we have a lot of people. um, And so it's a lot of work. Wow. That's a big job, uh, Patricia. My goodness. we educate them all. We, um, in 2019, we provided 77,000 anesthetics. So it's a lot, it's a lot of work and I have a team, but it's a lot of work. Wow. You know, when you were talking about that, we were, my husband and I were just watching, um, a little clip from Sully Sullivan and, you know, you have to go through the checklist. Um, when you said that, is there some, parallels like every industry maybe it deals with other people's lives have a protocol i imagine well there's there's a lot of analogies between anesthesiology and the airline industry and in fact we um try to take the best practices from the airline industry for example 
every anesthesia machine is oriented exactly the same way, um, even if they're two different manufacturers. So if you are in a happen to go to a different OR in a different hospital one day, it it actually is set up quite the same way, and we sometimes call it the anesthesia cockpit. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the anesthesia machine's always on uh, my right as I'm facing the patient, and my medication card is always behind me. And it doesn't, you know, we have the standard setups. Um, the patient safety checklist was actually, um, it's a World Health Organization uh, initiative. So it's around the world mm. in terms of uh, around procedures and around operations. And it has many components, but we do do, a, it's called a timeout in America. We take a timeout before the surgery starts and we go through you know, allergies, medications, what is a surgery? Are we on the, working on the correct side of the patient? Um, are we concerned about bleeding? Are we concerned about anything else? Um, do we have uh, fire safety even in the OR? I mean, there's, there's wow. a checklist for just about everything. And at first, I think there was a lot of resistance to them because, you know, we're doctors. We know what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think we've all experienced, now that they're really very standard, We've all experienced uh, times when the checklist has saved all of us, you know, from making an error. Yeah. Um, and so there's, a, you know, the human being is very complex. Mm-hmm. And even the simplest of operations are complex procedures. There's people involved and um, equipment involved and medications involved. And it's, it's a very complex thing. It's like flying a plane. And also with anesthesia, you know, you don't get to pick your anesthesiologist usually. It is a little bit like getting on an airplane. Like you pick the airline, you pick your flight, you pick your surgeon, you pick your hospital, but you don't necessarily, you don't pick your anesthesiologist. So, you know, I I like to, uh, um, I also like to reassure patients who are afraid of coming into the OR that I am actually pretty frightened of flying. So I I do understand how they feel. (laughs) I don't like getting on an airplane. I do. Oh, it's so. I think it's so interesting. Um, I'm just thinking. My daughter had surgery when she was six for two, a double uh, inguinal hernias on both in, on both sides. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I knew the surgeon, like you said, although they're not there for the pre-op or whatever. I don't know if I'm using the right terminologies before she was in yeah. there. Actually, maybe he came and said hello. I don't know. It was five in the morning, and you know, as a mom, you're nervous. And um, yes. And the anesthesiologist was so great. She was so great. Uh, and it made me wonder, I mean, because some of her operation was, a sh- you know, maybe an hour and a half, maybe around an hour and a half, two hours, but you're talking about six hours. Is it quiet in there? Now I'm just curious about the dynamics within the OR. You know, as you can imagine, there are parts of an operation that are um, preliminary. You know, reaching the spot that needs to be operated on can take some time, depending on mm. what part of the body you're operating on. And then there's the critical part of the operation where you're like, you know, taking out the brain tumor or, you know, clipping an aneurysm or, you know, actually repairing the hernia as, you know, and obviously the shorter the procedure, the longer fragment of that, the critical portion may be. That's not always true. But I think that there's, there's times when people talk and there's times when, when it's silent. Well, you're in an environment where you need to connect on a human level too. Yes. Do you ever talk to the patient? Oh, yeah. Um, Well, you know, this is is another challenge of my profession, right? So I don't usually have a relationship with the patient. But um, 
like you met the, uh, your daughter's anesthesiologist right before the surgery mm-hmm. uh, and you said she was great. So obviously she was able to establish some sort of relationship with you and your daughter. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so that's the challenge is you really have about five minutes yeah. to establish trust in a relationship. And also you have to find out what you need to know because yeah. there's, you can review the records, but there's always something that's not in the pa- on the paper or in the record that you that you want to know about somebody. Mm. And so that's I really I, I enjoy that part of my job and I really enjoy following up um to the degree that I do. I, I don't I don't follow up with people once they go home um for some very complicated things or particular patients. I'll I'll follow up through the surgeon because I know they're gonna see them and I'll say, how was, mm. you know, Mr. So and so from last week when you saw him in the office. Oh, he's doing great, blah, blah, mm. blah. You know. Gosh, your your job is so there's so many components to it. And again, I have such gratitude yeah. for you. When somebody's under, are they aware? Like, can so that I was curious oh, when they're God. under, are you Hopefully talking not. to them? Well, aware in the, on um, some level, uh, I guess I'm wondering, you know, yeah. Cause I remember, I think I, I was like, tell her she's going to be good or something. Like I wanted to plant some sort of calm, even though I, cause I can't be there for as a parent, you know, you, you 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 want reassurance yeah. for your child because you can't, I mean, it's kind of crazy if you think about it to have such a big thing happening and you can't be there to hold their hand. I get it. Why? But it's a hard thing. Yeah. It's very hard. It's, it's very hard. I mean, I, I, you know, I don't, I don't know that I really realized that until I had my own children. You know, you say you understand, but you don't until <laughs> I think you have your own kids. But, um, so as far as awareness, that is something that if you're truly under general anesthesia, should not happen, mm-hmm. um, although it has happened. And the people to whom that's happened are often high-risk you know, trauma victims, you know, pedestrians hit by cars, someone who's lost a lot of blood. They're not going to tolerate a lot of anesthesia. Oh, I see. Um, so as they, you know, usually if someone's blood pressure is very low, they're not going to remember anyway. Um, but that, that does happen in emergency situations rarely. Um, we do have monitors to um, monitor a processed electroencephalogram, sort of brainwaves process. They're not 100%, but they're used extensively uh, because people do have different tolerances. It's, it's one of the things that's challenging is that some people are very sensitive mm-hmm. and, to medication and some people require a lot of medication mm-hmm. to be in the same depth of anesthesia. There is a lot of confusion, I think, in cases of sedation, such as colonoscopy, Mm -hmm. where people are not told. It's very difficult to to guarantee that they will be unconscious the whole time because we're not planning on a general anesthetic. But we do usually give them enough sedation that they are unconscious for most of the time. So there may be some you know, periods of the procedure where they're a little bit more aware and that can be confusing. <laughs> okay. I was but, just always curious about that. I was just curious about that. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's the, the, uh, and the talking to patients. I remember when I was a young attending, there was a lot of emphasis on bringing soothing music with headphones into the OR and allowing people to listen to music. And there have been several studies and I'm not so familiar with them, but it certainly doesn't hurt. Um, for me, you know, most of my patients have brain surgery, mm. so they're not going to be in headphones. Correct. But yeah. we do tend to say things. I think uh, when someone's awakening from anesthesia, they're hearing 
does come back before we're aware that they're really awake. Mm. And so I, I, I place a big emphasis on the end of the procedure, the room being quiet. And I'll often be talking to people before they appear to be awake. And sometimes that will alarm the surgeon a little bit mm. until they get used to the fact that I do that. Mm. Just in case, just to say, you know, you're waking up now, everything is fine. The procedure is finished. Just in case, I think it would be very frightening to to be waking up and not know where you are totally. and forget because the anesthesia does make you forget. So you suddenly, you know, you're in waking up in an operating room, but you don't really understand that you're in an operating room and you're a little cold and you might have a little discomfort and it's a frightening thing. Mm. Hopefully not too frightening, but you know, it can't be. Yeah. You mentioned um, before we were talking, before we actually officially started the interview about I had asked you, I was just curious about artificial intelligence because I'd happened to be having a conversation yeah. with a friend and she's like, if I had the choice of being operated on by a surgeon or a machine, I would choose the machine. And I was like, I would 100% choose the human. She's like, but there's more risk forever. And I said, I think though human beings have that gut sense or they realize, well, we thought it was this, but now it's this. And I, there's also just that soul to soul connection. I don't know, but it was interesting. I was like, wow, you really, she's like, yeah, if my mom or I needed surgery, I would want a machine. And I was like, wow, this is interesting. But, but there is some AI in operating rooms. Is that right? Yeah. Well, I mean, for the surgeons, there are surgical robots that um, assist them. They're not actually doing the operation, but they're certainly guiding. Um, we have you know, in the areas that I work in, the neurosurgeons use very sophisticated navigation systems where they they take an, an MRI and they fuse it with an instrument. Um, it can read an instrument that they use, a little probe, so that they, when they point to something, they know they're going to go right into where the tumor or the mm-hmm. whatever is on the MRI. And so their incisions can be much smaller and there's less risk of damaging mm-hmm. um, surrounding tissues. And so I, I get that though, and I don't mean to interrupt you, Patricia. I get that, like yeah. assisting, and but yeah. I want the surgeon driving. <laughs> it's kind of like the automatic yeah, well, cars think, driving and humans. I don't know. It's just, I, I think over time there's going to be more and more of the automation actually doing more because when you think about it, yeah. the with this navigation, the surgeon is not driving. They're 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 being guided by the automation and they're doing the procedure, but it, it does make it safer and faster. Um, and so, and in anesthesiology, what we have is uh, com- coming, coming in the future is a lot of looking at the patient's vital signs, which I can look at. And, you know, with experience, I think I'm pretty good at seeing something's going to happen before it happens. Like maybe the patient's losing more blood than I think because there's a change in the very soul change in the blood pressure. But there are algorithms to calculate that much better than I can that are not currently widely used, uh, but they're in development that will say, you know, hey, you better pay attention because this, this curve that you're looking at visually is actually changing and you just can't see it yet because, you know, it's on a screen. So I think there's definitely a lot of support. It's called decision support in general terms, where specific data is analyzed by a computer within an algorithm and it, it, it alerts you that, you know, this, this may be happening. And then you can decide, you can review and decide, mm-hmm. 
but um, you know, those alerts I think certainly will improve patient safety. Yeah. Yeah. No, that because makes sometimes sense. in my, in my you know reviewing of charts, sometimes when I look back, you know, when you look back, you can say, oh yes, I could see that that was starting to happen there, you know, and, and it didn't really become apparent even with someone really looking at it for 10, you know, for another 10 minutes. So. Yeah, that makes sense. It will be helpful. Yeah. And I'm always open. It's just, you know, uh, I'm a, I'm a very much a people person. (laughs) So to me, I always. Yeah. 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 But you know where else this is in, in, I I believe in like laser eye surgery. I was thinking of that as you were talking. I'm like, well, if I, cause I want to get LASIK actually. I was like, well, I guess that's not Uh going to be the the surgeon. He's going to do all the prep and make sure my eyes are. The programming. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. And then yep. Sheen's going to do the search. I thought of that. And of course, I would trust yeah. that, I guess, because it's been around for so long. Right. So I think we'll, we'll have more and more of that for specific procedures. But I, I, I don't see a physician being replaced by robots at all, because there, there is that decision making. And there's also, the, you know, the main decision is, is this going to be a useful therapy? You know, that's. That's the main decision, and and that's something a doctor and a patient can really it's best to decide together because the patient knows what they want, you know, not for not for routine things, but for you know some major things. Yeah, I, I've loved this conversation. Can you? I'm, I'm wondering, you know, with your your own professional journey and what you've discovered about kind of following what's in your heart to do and just really following what you're good at and how that opens doors. Any advice for women who are on a career path um, and want to, you know, really open themselves up to the next level of what they're doing? Well, I think when you're starting your journey, you have to be open to everything, right? If someone asks you, can you do something? You say yes. Um, And I think that the one piece of advice I would give is that Sometimes, you know, we're always told we could have it all, you know, mm-hmm. you have to, you know, you can do it all. You can do it all. And I felt like at a certain point I couldn't do it all. And if you're really in that position, I think it's okay. It's okay to make the decision that you can't do it all. You're not a failure. You are actually more of a success because you're recognizing that, you know, it's not, you don't want if you're trying to do too many things, sometimes you're not doing any of them well. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I felt that coming on to me in terms of the clinical research. And I said, I'm not able to do this well. I don't want to do it poorly for the idea that I have to do it all. That, you know, so at the time, it felt like a bit of a failure. But looking back on it, it actually has led me to have the time to do now what I love, which I wouldn't have had. I would have been going down this, this other path. And perhaps not, but maybe I would have been as successful, but perhaps not. And this is something I really enjoy. I really like taking care of patients. And I also really enjoy um, making them safer, not just the day that I'm taking care of them, but like more broadly in the institution and in the world of anesthesiology. I find it extremely rewarding. Um, And um, I hope that I'm also supportive of my colleagues because you know, we all need support um, at times when things are not going perfectly. But that's and and to let it take time. You know, it's not necessarily it didn't it didn't work itself out for me for ten years. It was two thousand five to two thousand fifteen. So um, 
it, it took some time and it was slowly growing and I didn't necessarily even really n- notice it. Yeah. So have some faith that, you know, trust what's true for you in the moment and make those decisions and yeah. keep taking steps forward. Right. Keep taking steps forward and, you know, deciding that something is not working out for you is not a failure. Yeah. It's actually a success. That's really an important message. And this has been such a great conversation. And I just really, again, want to thank you for your service, for everyone in in your hospital. I mean, really, just thank no. you, thank you, thank it's- you. It's unusual times and you're there every day. Um, most of us are home working yeah. and doing our things. So, so much gratitude. And I love your story. I mean, it's well, really you're fascinating. Welcome. Well, thank you. Thank you. I've I've loved being having the opportunity to tell it. Thank you so much. Um, where I can people it. learn more about you, Patricia? Well, um, you know, we have a departmental uh, page, you know, on the on the web. But I guess it would be LinkedIn if, if you know anyone uh, would like to discuss quality in medicine or anesthesiology further. Um, I do. I am on LinkedIn under Patricia Mack. So. Thank you. This has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for tuning in today. I hope you gained some new information or inspiration for your life. That is that the essence of this show is to really wake up to what's possible for you to reclaim your beautiful voice and to really learn to love and prioritize yourself. So if you gained any value from any of the conversations you've tuned into, Make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast player. You can do that right now on your phone. And please do consider leaving a rating and review if you have yet to do so on Apple Podcasts. It's actually how more women can find the show. And I really want to grow a community of women who are loving themselves and living full on. So thank you as always for tuning in. And I look forward to reconnecting with you next Wednesday. Bye for now.